Hello, everybody. This is Nir Izakovich from the Applied Ethics Center, UMass in Boston. And uh, my guest today is my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Udi Iran. Hi, Udi. Hi, Nir. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For Udi is a uh, visiting scholar in the political science department right now at Stanford and also a visiting lecturer at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, he is uh, usually a senior lecturer of international relations or associate professor, as we call it here, of international relations at the University of Haifa in Israel and an active board member at Mitvim, which is a leading Israeli think tank. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for the Research of Intelligence Methodology. Uh, Udi uh, directed Haifa's uh, Center for National Security and was one of the co-founders of its Center for Maritime Strategy. He also served as the academic director of Israel's National Intelligence, I'm sorry, National Security uh, College on behalf of the University at Haifa. Dr. Iran's uh, research uh, appointments have been at Harvard Law School, Harvard Kennedy School, Stanford's Department of Political Science right now. And he's been a visiting, uh, visiting lecturer in the Department of uh, Political Science at MIT. Before his academic career, Dr. Iran held a number of positions in the Israeli civil service, including as assistant to the prime minister's foreign policy advisor. He is the author of two books and some 50 scholarly articles, book chapters, policy briefs, as well as numerous op-eds, mostly in American and uh, Israeli outlets. His research interests include spatial technologies, legal aspects of international conflict, um, mostly in the Arab-Israeli context, negotiation and conflict resolution, maritime strategy, and intelligence study. Udi, that is a very impressive biography, and you need big lungs to be able to <laughs> convey it. So we are very happy to have you here on the Ethics in Action podcast. Thank you again. Thank you for having me and for this kind of introduction. So Udi, um, I thought it could be uh, wonderful to hear from you uh, as an expert on uh, uh, Middle East uh, peace negotiations, uh, both as a scholar and uh, as a practitioner. Um, about the recent uh, peace agreements uh, or normalization agreements between uh, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, uh, and Bahrain, which uh, um, have just been signed uh, in D.C. So uh, maybe um, let's start with um, a little bit of background. Um, what was the status quo ante before these uh, agreements? What, uh, in your understanding, if anything, did these agreements uh, change and how did they change the status of the players? So Israeli and Gulf relation really evolved uh, starting in the 1990s once Israel uh, moved forward with the Palestinians, leading all the way to uh, Israeli missions, uh, embassy-like uh, places in uh, Qatar and in Oman. Um, Following the collapse of the talks with the Palestinians, the diplomatic side uh, was rolled back, but business relations and other relations continued and indeed intensified in the last decade or a bit longer. This was a result of a pure power politics calculation. Both Israel and the Gulf states uh, grew increasingly concerned about the growth of Iranian power. 
Um, and also changes in the Gulf states, uh, being more open, uh, focusing on the, developing their international status, inviting investments, uh, led to a situation in which hundreds of Israelis uh, you know, uh, went to Gulf states, conducted business. Some people flew on a weekly basis to conduct business, although this was kept uh, all under wraps. So the main difference now is going out in public, uh, including uh, being open about the relationship and the potential uh, re-establishment of diplomatic relations. Uh, I should also add that, just to be more accurate, Israel did have a representative in the UAE, but he was technically on the UN, uh, as a UN uh, compound uh, there, uh, international organization. So it was Israel's representative to this UN entity. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the openness. And I think the second significance is, uh, we spoke earlier, is the real issue of the, the Palestinian issue. The Palestinians no longer became the uh, entity that gives legitimacy to the Israeli actions. Uh, say, say a little bit more about what you mean by that last point. So traditionally, it was assumed that Israel's true acceptance to a Middle East that generally rejected it would be a peace deal with the Palestinians. And indeed, that's what we saw in the 1990s. Uh, however, as we all know, for a long time now, more than a decade, Israeli-Palestinian relations are not moving anywhere. The status quo as, as it is, Israel controls the West Bank, is in a conflict that switched on and off with Hamas in Gaza. And yet, despite this lack of progress, uh, these Gulf states were willing and able uh, to move forward with Israel. So that is quite a dramatic shift in the way we think about this triangle of Israel, Arab countries, and the Palestinians. Yeah, so as you say, that's a real from uh, tradition, at least for uh, the Arab states uh, and the sort of previous paradigm uh, uh, um, uh, traditional Arab peace plan was some kind of trade-off, right, between uh, normalization in return uh, for uh, serious progress on the Israeli-Palestinian track. Why do you think uh, that uh, the UAE and uh, Bahrain uh, were able to break with that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a question I think many people were asking themselves. I suspect part of it was the fact that it's already in, in ongoing. Uh, the fact that uh, there were close, potentially intimate relationship between the countries before, including, it seems, sales of arms and other things that are considered sensitive. The second thing is uh, the, f the fracturing of the Arab world. Uh, there is no clear Arab unity on numerous issues. The third issue is, as I mentioned earlier, pure concern about Iran, and the threat of Iran is greater uh, than the legitimacy confirmed by the Palestinians. And we should also maybe something say something about this type of regime. These are relatively small countries, especially the UAE, uh, mostly uh, you know around the leader, leader or family. Um, maybe it's easier, and it's the, the question of broader legitimacy is less central as it is in other countries like Jordan or Egypt. Um, I think these are probably the main reasons. Ah, and of course, I, I failed to mention, this is the immediate context. The broader context is the US's role in pushing these countries to do it. Mm -hmm. And what, um, so just to sort of uh, linger for a moment on a point that you made, sure. um, if I understand you correctly, part of what you're arguing is that in the UAE and Bahrain, there isn't this kind of concern of popular unrest arising as a result of a perceived slight of the Palestinians as they're 
could have been in uh, Jordan, for example? I think more in the UAE. In Bahrain, the, we know there was some unrest over the Shiite Sunnah divide. And indeed, if you cl look closely, the, Bahrain, uh, the Israeli Bahrain declaration is more muted. It's not a full agreement, but rather they stand on a very general declaration that is to be worked out. But yes, compared to a country like Egypt that has uh, millions of people that are, don't get basics, uh, you know, there's challenges to social services, and so itself is the leader of the Arab world, uh, and is the center of culture, and uh, there's a large population that you have to work on, it, on securing its legitimacy. The Gulf states that are rich and have the resources and have a smaller population, I think it's politically uh, less risky uh, for them. Still, it doesn't go without ease. The UAE is a coalition of different uh, leaders. So you have to make sure uh, all these small principalities are okay with that. But it's a different type of challenge compared to uh, Jordan or in Egypt. Yeah. So let me ask you, since you mentioned the uh, immediate American uh, role in pushing uh, for this, could you um, outline for us what the interests of the different players in getting this done right now were, the US, the Israelis, and then the two uh, 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 Gulf states? Yeah, it seems to me uh, from afar that uh, the timing serves, uh, uh, of course, uh, first and foremost, President Trump. The deal was signed on uh, September 15th. Uh, we're close to an election, they're contested. Uh, this allows President Trump uh, both to look uh, and uh, play in the international arena uh, and to show a clear um, achievement. Uh, and it, of course, tied to his deal of the century and this uh, uh, ideas he offered uh, a while back about how to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It doesn't solve that conflict, but it allows him to look uh, a, a really as a leader in the global arena. If you saw this, this uh, ceremony itself, uh, he was very central. They were... Uh, uh, in the speeches, there was a lot of mention by the other leaders to his uh, personal leadership and so on. It should be noted, though, if you look at American history and presidential elections, huge achievements on the foreign policy arena rarely secure internal elections. Uh, I think in this case, at least in part, it plays to the president's uh, also self-image uh, in a time where, uh, you know, towards an election, but also panders to his, some traits in his personality. So that's on the American side. Uh, on the Israeli side, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in a real bind. Uh, as you know, he's indicted for three charges of um, a, a corruption and he's supposed to go on trial in December. He's mishandling uh, um, the corona crisis. Israel is in a massive crisis. It was the first Western country that went to a second lockdown. And there's a general feeling that he's not managing the crisis uh, well. And combination of two leads to massive demonstrations in front of his house in numerous places in Israel for a, a few weeks now. So I'm not sure if he fine-tuned it exactly now, but it obviously serves, serves him in deflecting some of the crit criticism and supporting arguments that uh, despite perhaps his small uh, flaws in ethics, uh, he still serves Israeli interests uh, uh, in a way that no other leader could, and of course allows to portray himself uh, as a global leader, uh, an effective player in the international arena, and so on. 
for the Gulf leaders, I'm not sure there's any specific timing uh, now, uh, as they are not in these election cycles and popular unrest. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if I kind of um, uh, summarize uh, uh, some of what you says, some of what you said, uh, it's unclear if this does anything at all for Trump. Uh, historically, uh, certainly leading up to an election, people just don't care that much about foreign policy uh, achievements, although it does play to uh, the president's sort of bombastic uh, uh, self-image. Um, Netanyahu seems to get a real kind of counterweight against his perceived incompetence in handling the corona and his perceived uh, I guess both are not perceived, but seem to be uh, actual uh, uh, involvement in uh, corruption. I mean, for the Israelis, even on the psychological symbolic level, doubling in one day the number of uh, uh, peace and normalization agreements uh, they have is a big deal. I was pretty shocked as I was uh, 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 following the Israeli news. I mean, I wasn't surprised that this was marginalized uh, in American news, because I think people just don't care that much. Uh, even Fox News managed to marginalize it. Uh, <laughs> interesting surprise. But it was kind of marginalized by the Israeli press. Uh, and is that is there a perception in Israel about, is there a sort of what have you done for me lately kind of perception of what does this actually do for your average Israeli that this is an agreement of elites between elites that benefits, you know, rich Israeli businessmen, oil moguls, and so on and so forth? And if yeah, I think Israeli society is greatly divided. So people quarters who support Netanyahu did highlight the significance of that. It's not only achieving the deal, but goes back to a point we discussed earlier, but because it sort of turns some of the uh, lefts, so the people who oppose Netanyahu's arguments on their head, uh, everyone wanted, uh, people especially in the left, wanted to peace, push for peace with the Palestinians, in part because it would allow access to the Arab world, as we saw in the 1990s. And here Netanyahu shows them that they're wrong. So I think in quarters close to him, there was, uh, people were, uh, did highlight it, and <laughs> some television channel channels sent reporters uh, to the Gulf and uh, we're looking at prices of hotels and how would, uh, uh, you know, how would Israeli tourists get there. Some other sectors pushed very quickly forward with uh, open and public cooperation agreements, including a potentially joint venture to bid of an Israeli Emirati company to bid for the port of Haifa um, to buy it. So that would be quite interesting if it would be owned by an Emirati company. But as you say, most of the country now is in the midst of an incredible crisis. Um, so there were, especially people who oppose Netanyahu, but not only them, are wondering uh, how is this going to help them exactly. So I agree with you. It wasn't perhaps at the top, top, top of the news, but I think at least people close to Netanyahu did, uh, did highlight the significance of this. Yeah. Um... So since you're, you know, let me uh, draw on your expertise for a moment in uh, uh, negotiation theory and practice. Usually these um, negotiation uh, episodes involve uh, concessions on uh, both sides. 
Um, what, um, you know, Netanyahu touted this as a, a, a peace for peace kind of agreement, which was supposed to juxtapose it uh, to uh, land for peace uh, deals uh, that uh, characterized previous agreements or the failed process with the Palestinians. So uh, was this peace for peace or were there some uh, uh, strategic prices that Israel has paid for this? So from what we know, not everything is public, but from what we know now, the only public thing that Israel supposedly gave up was its uh, um, supposed annexation of portions of the West Bank. As you know, Netanyahu, during the multiple elections he had in the last year and a half, out of the blue began promising that once he gets elected, he'll annex portions of the West Bank that Israel controlled since 1967. And supposedly he gave up this for that deal. Uh, he already lost his enthusiasm to doing so in the summer. Um, uh, so if you will, he gave up something, but an asset he just invented uh, shortly uh, before that. And it's not surprising that there is no, not a lot of items on the agenda because it's not a traditional piece between neighbors who had been fighting for generations and there's some assets that are, have to be divided. These are faraway countries. We, we essentially agree on a coordination or cooperation mechanism. This is close to a, you know, a commercial deal of exchange uh, uh, that both sides want, rather than a political deal of, of dividing assets. Right, right. Um, so you know, one cost is you know, if you sort of take a, a Machiavellian look at it, is it uh, allowed uh, Netanyahu to climb off a tree that he got himself up on and didn't know how to get off of, and uh, you know, was able to, uh, namely the tree of annexation, and then was able to uh, present that as a concession, which, you know, love him or hate him, that's a pretty clever uh, uh, move, uh, but. Uh, going to something that you mentioned uh, a moment ago, so, you know, this possibility of uh, purchase of a strategic asset uh, uh, like the Haifa uh, uh, port by uh, uh, UAE actors, uh, but also um, some of the uh, American uh, uh, remuneration to uh, UAE in the form of uh, selling them the F-35, which does seem to be a, a strategic weapon, the, the, the radar evading uh, uh, bomber pilots. Um, you know, it's hard not to make the uh, counterfactual comparison with had there been a peace with Syria, that country would have now uh, destabilized uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, volatile as it is having uh, these strategic weapons. So isn't that a real kind of national security risk? Yes, I failed to mention this this component of the deal because uh, I, I thought you were asking only on direct Israeli concessions. So as we saw in other uh, deals between Israel and Egypt is pr the primary example, there is a third party side payments. The side payment in this case is the F-35, these advanced planes. And Israel has a component because under legislation in Congress, uh, U.S. has to make sure that Israel keeps its qualitative advantage. So Israel's not opposing the deal allows President Trump uh, to show that he's advancing arms sales, American jobs, um, uh, and supporting an ally. There is an internal debate in Israel: is it really is it really a threat that Israel, you know, allowed this to pass? Because these countries are far away, 
and the weapons at least now are directed uh, uh, against Iran versus people that said, who knows, these regimes may be unstable. Um, but I, I think no one, there is no strong internal opposition for the supply of these planes, um, as far as I'm aware. You, you mean in Israel? In Israel, yeah. Yeah, but is that because of a sort of political pressure that sidelines national security or because of genuine lack of worry? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, it was published that one of Netanyahu's close allies uh, overjumped, over if you will, the uh, chain of command and met directly with the commander of the Air Force in preparation for that deal. We don't know exactly what occurred in this meeting, but there are no leaks of Air Force opposition. And there are other former officials who said that's okay, it's very far away from here, the weapons are uh, put to a good service. But you're also right to point out that Netanyahu, who's now uh, 11 years straight in power, gained more and more confidence versus the security uh, organizations that traditionally enjoy a lot of autonomy. Um, about a decade ago, he had a direct clash with all the leaders of all the services over a potential attack on Iran. And from what we know, they essentially prevented him from carrying his policy. But he grew very confident, especially after the 2015 elections, a lot of his appointments in these organizations are people who are loyal to him personally. So it's a combination of the different balance between soldiers and politicians and a, and a, a, a professional position uh, about the weapons. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about something that you uh, uh, have been uh, uh, touching on. Let me ask you to expand on it a little bit. Um, is this agreement uh, uh, between Israel, UAE, and uh, uh, Bahrain, or agreements. Is this another um, symptom that the kind of main organizing question in the Middle East and Middle East politics is moving from attention to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to an access or to a uh, uh, Saudi-Iranian tension? And that Israel is kind of changing focus trying to uh, become uh, uh, part of the um, Saudi part of that equation? It, it does, it does, you're right that it does in this, in this way, I think, change Israel's the way it approached the region in general. Um, the Israeli approach initially when Zionism began was to really become part of the region. Uh, the first uh, Zionist settlers dressed like Arabs and so on. Uh, but from the 40s, if not earlier, Israel's approach was let's develop an If the region opposes us, we respond by developing what was called an iron wall, a defensive measure uh, that will disconnect us from the region and will allow us to uh, uh, operate uh, uh, independently with this sort of moat that's between the, us and the region. Uh, Israeli elites go to study in the US, not in the UAE. Uh, Arabic is hardly spoken and so on. I think what happened was the Iron Wall became so strong and so effective that it itself became an element that allowed Israel to play in, in its immediate regions. I'm actually in the middle of writing something short about this in at least two directions. One is towards the east, so that's towards the Gulf states. They saw a strong country that can balance against Iran. Initially, that country became strong because it had to build this Iron Wall. And people pay perhaps less attention, but also to the West, Israel developed an alliance with Cyprus and Greece, which are also attracted to an extent to its powers. Uh, Israel is less directly involved there, but in both arenas, 
I think for the first time in 70 years, Israel is slowly being dragged to become a regional player and not, a, as Prime Minister Barak used to call it, a villa in the jungle separated behind huge uh, walls. We're not there yet, but it's definitely uh, uh, an indication in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Would, um, would you predict or um, are you uh, hearing noises that the actual agreement with uh, Saudi is next? You know, like everyone else, I follow it uh, from what's in the media. It seems that there's some debate in the Saudi court uh, how open to be. The Saudis clearly have been more open uh, probably in the last two, three years. For the first time, they allowed Israelis to travel to Saudi Arabia um, for a few events. It, it subsided a bit once the crown prince, some of his uh, break uh, breakthroughs in policy turned out to be not so effective. I think he got slightly weaker and uh, maybe he can't push as, as, as much as he could. So really the answer depends on the internal relations between the king and the crown prince. Um, and we have to be see, we see how it happens. But in reality, they have been moving forward. We did see this preliminary, like we saw in the Gulf states, we are seeing more and more signs uh, of Saudi, quiet Israeli Saudi cooperation. And it goes without saying that none of this could have happened without Saudi agreement, right? The, uh, in the two, prob- the, yeah. the two uh, normalization agreements. Yeah, yeah I'm not, I'm not uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not, I'm not completely, I uh, don't have a strong picture of this, the exact dynamics between these uh, countries in the Gulf, but I'm assuming you're right. Yeah. Uh, I want to uh, uh, dig a little more um, uh, about the iron wall concept that you're talking about. So just mm-hmm. uh, uh, a bit of uh, background. That's a term that was introduced by uh, Zev Jabotinsky in the early uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I think 1918-19, but I'm not remembering. It's an article that he wrote for a Russian newspaper at the mm-hmm. point was Jabotinsky was a, uh, a, uh, a Zionist right of center uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, thinker. And basically the argument was that out of understanding what uh, um, uh, uh, native people uh, experience when uh, uh, they have a uh, threat or even uh, a kind of colonial threat, which he wasn't uh, averse to describing it like that, uh, Israel would not be accepted in the region until all of the hopes of people to sort of drown it out and uh, destroy it were broken against an iron wall. That's the name he gave the article. And only when the iron uh, wall was seen as uh, impenetrable uh, would the country be uh, accepted. And um, it seems like part of, uh, uh, if I understand your argument correctly, part of what's been going on is that it is because of that iron wall that both Israel felt secure enough to uh, uh, move in this uh, direction of these peace agreements and others are accepting it as an unchangeable reality. Uh, so let's, um, let's address the uh, sort of elephant in uh, uh, these discussions and that's the uh, uh, Palestinian issue. Um, so 
I mean, as the as the uh, ceremony in the White House uh, was playing out, uh, you remember that there were uh, either Hamas or Islamic Jihad, I guess Islamic Jihad, uh, mm -hmm. shooting uh, rockets from uh, Gaza into uh, southern Israel. They were shot down by Israeli air defenses, but it was clearly a message, right? That, you know, you can't pretend uh, uh, we don't exist. Um, so, what, if any, do you think significance these agreements are going to have uh, in the Palestinian context? The Palestinians see themselves as being betrayed by the UAE and by uh, Bahrain. A long time ago, they gave up on the US as a, a, a fair uh, um, mediator. Um, so what, what, uh, what's going to be the meaning of this, do you think, in the Palestinian arena? Uh, so one quick comment on what I said on the Iron Wall. So what I meant was not only the Iron Wall worked effectively in, in conveying the message that uh, uh, Israel cannot be attacked, but developing the wall itself, the building blocks, the military capabilities, had made Israel so strong that it could become not only a, a, the wall is not only a defensive measure, but a tool of diplomacy in essence. Uh, going back to the Palestinians, there is a general feeling among Israeli elites, especially on the right, that the Palestinians are so weak uh, and we are able to contain the current situation, which, as you recall, in, is partly because the Palestinian national movement is uh, broken into two entities that control different uh, geographies. In fact, there was a movement in the right to uh, do formal declarations of victory over the Palestinians and just get it uh, uh, done uh, with and that they're no longer uh, a viable national entity that we should contend with. Other ideas on the right are to uh, allow local autonomies and empower local leaders. Uh, it's called the Emirates plan. Um, and so there, there is a feeling on uh, portions of the Israeli right that uh, they're no longer an actor, and this should uh, allow us to move forward with our countries and so on. However, my guide in part is history, because the, the Palestinians were, uh, uh, before that, let me add one more thing. It also discredited heavily the Palestinian Authority. This is the entity that was created out of the Oslo Accords and has some partial control over the West Bank, led by Mahmoud Abbas, President Abu Mazen, and their main credo in the last since their creation was a dialogue and a cooperation with Israel. So they already are severely discredited and this move is a further blow because it shows their population. They cannot deliver, not militarily, not politically. Uh, they're unable even to keep uh, Arab uh, actors on their sides. Uh, so, so that is a big challenge. However, I think in part my guide is history. The Palestinians were written off at least twice um, historically after the defeat in the 1947-1949 war, the question disappeared and became a humanitarian question of refugees rather than a political question. But young Palestinians, Arafat and his group, they revived the movement in the late 60s, moved into violent attacks, what Israelis call terrorism, and reintroduced the Palestinian question on the stage. Similarly, 20 years of Israeli control in the West Bank from 67 to 87 were under the assessment of Israelis that the status quo can be maintained, Palestinians are, their quality of life is better, it's a done deal. And yet there was a Palestinian uprising in 1987 that led Israel to talk to them by the early 1990s. So I can't predict what pattern we are going to see now. I just know that we have seen that every time that this issue is 
Israelis believe it's, it's ceasing to be an issue, the political aspirations of this group uh, do arise in some uh, way, shape or form. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like there are two um, opposing questions as a, a, a result of this. So let me uh, try to pose them to you. I think one of them you were just discussing. Uh, are the Israelis overestimating the force of their iron wall vis-a-vis um, uh, uh, -vis the Palestinians? Again, it seems like the iron wall is uh, uh, making them one way or another uh, uh, either believe or pretend that they can uh, look at the Palestinians and uh, uh, not see anything. Uh, and uh, on the other side of this, is there a chance that the way in which they were completely not counted in all of this procedure will uh, be a wake-up call for the Palestinians uh, uh, in the future to uh, recognize their real weight? So I think in some ways you're right that the Israelis are overestimating the use, the effectiveness of force uh, in numerous ways. For example, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians in the West Bank, you can't really put a wall because the populations are somewhat intermixed because of 400,000 Israeli settlers. So one immediate weakening potentially of the world is really Israeli expansion into these areas, which will mean behind the wall you have a state that has a strong internal tensions and inequalities. Secondly, I think Israelis are discounting a bit the costs of the war vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, the continued control in the West Bank, takes a toll on uh, morality, on, uh, on, on democracy. We, there's no way to say it, uh, to go around this. Uh, and on top of that, we had relied on force before, and it turned out the other side many times has an internal learning mechanism. We saw it with Hezbollah in the north. We saw it with the Egyptians and the Syrians in the 70s. So again, I can't predict exactly what would be the learning mechanism, but one cannot assume that you just deploy force in an effective way and the other party will not respond. Um, but it will be hard to predict exactly in what way uh, uh, this will occur. Uh, your second question, uh, remind me. Um, does this in any way uh, give the Palestinians uh, a wake-up call? At least to some groups it does. Uh, it's not necessarily a wake-up, but it's a reminder that it's time to explore other options. For now, we are, we are looking mostly at grassroots uh, responses. So there is more thinking in the Israeli side as well, by the way, although that's in the fringes. Can we rearrange the territory between the Jordan and the sea in other ways? Uh, there's a bunch of creative ideas, like declare two national entities, but in one sovereign space. Uh, uh, there are a number of ideas. So I think it will push these people who are thinking outside the box uh, to reassess. The Palestinian Authority, it's hard for me to see uh, that it will completely recalculate, especially because there is no process on the ground. It's not that they are now offered something or under this reality there's some new configuration. Um, and and the, the PA has a lot of other issues besides, you know, arguments about corruption and uh, there's incentives also to remain as an institution because simply they pay salaries. So it's a broader picture, picture about the institution. But for new thinking, new ideas, out-of-the-box ideas, I think it will provide not the determinant push, but definitely a further push to explore other options.
I mean, insofar as a huge question for Israelis has been, can they stay a Jewish democratic state as some of their founding constitutional documents uh, uh, describe them? Obviously, that issue is intimately and almost exclusively tied in with the Palestinian question, right? So if you continue the control over uh, the Palestinians, you eventually, uh, given demographic facts, become, uh, uh, you find yourself in reality where a minority of Jews uh, is uh, controlling a majority of Palestinians and you either stop being Jewish or you stop being democratic. You can't quite be both. You know, if anything, that problem has exacerbated. One thing that I, you know, and I, I'm wondering um, uh, about your assessment of this. Uh, so this used to be the self-understanding of uh, Israel as a Jewish democratic state, democratic to the extent it's Jewish, Jewish to the extent that it's democratic, basic tension, so on and so forth, used to be the basic uh, 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 description of identity for pragmatic Zionists. Uh, is this obsolete? Is, the, is that, I mean, it seems like in Israeli politics, at least, the question sort of is only interesting to a small remaining elite. And I mean, you know, beyond on, on the day after Corona and on the day after uh, the, the economic reconstruction begins, does anybody still care about that definition of identity? Democracy is not only an identity, but also a day-to-day -day practice. How much is your voice heard? How much you get to participate? I think it's under it's under attack on a number of fronts. Not only, of course, the control of the Palestinians is a major element, but first of all, there's a global context. Liberal democracy is weakening everywhere, and we have a rise of a global power that's not democratic. Israel is a small country, and in part, it is a, the political powers within it are a reflection of global trends. Uh, you know, Israel was socialist when socialism was at its peak. Uh, its commitment to democracy at the moment of birth, it's because it occurred immediately after the, the, the creation of the United Nations, which committed itself to democracy. So there's a global picture that's not supportive of that. Even the United States, the emblem and symbol of democracy has itself major, major challenges. So I think that's one issue. Um, uh, secondly, the, the depth of democracy in Israel, it, it's true that it was declarative, but let's say in the education system, it's not a major element. And there, there are, as you know, there are elements in the system that are definitely not supportive, like separate, uh, most Arabs and Jews study in separate institutions, not because of, uh, uh, not because of discrimination, but because they reside in different settlements in most cases. Um, the prime minister's behavior, uh, added to it because he's under because he's under investigation and now being indicted he's attacking uh, uh, the prosecution the police so that's an attack on the state institutions that are guardians of democracy uh, uh, of course the, the corona crisis and the economic crisis also add to more tensions in terms of uh, privacy uh, state control of public spaces and so on so in multiple arenas i think there's an attack uh, and there is, a, I don't know if it it's, doesn't interest anyone because people still want to be heard and want their preferences to be accepted by their leadership. But there's multiple challenges on multi, multiple fronts and I hope we'll be able to get out of this crisis in re-energizing, reinvigorating uh, what does it mean uh, to be democratic in the Israeli context. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds right. You know, there's a there's there's a funny uh, striking. Uh, piece of rhetoric from Netanyahu that kind of, uh, to me, was symbolic when he uh, was describing, you know, the UAE as a vibrant democracy. Uh, and it used to be that the rhetoric was Israel is the only dem democracy in the Middle East. And that kind of turned on a dime to uh, we're a good company of the UAE, which is many things democratic, it's not. Um, certainly for Netanyahu, the self-definition of democ of being a, a, a democracy with sort of stable democratic institutions uh, seems to, uh, shall we say, not be uh, center stage. Um, but, um, you know, one, one thing I was reminded of um, uh, as uh, you were talking, as you were describing the position of the Palestinians, there's this book that I uh, 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 love to uh, I think we may have discussed this in the past, uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, uh, and it's, it's classic in uh, international relations, classic in uh, uh, um, uh, thinking about war, obviously, as well. And the famous Melian dialogue in that book is this moment where the weak kind of realize that um, their claims of justice don't matter. There's this discussion there, dialogue that the cities brings between Athenian generals and this tiny island state of Milos, which is insisting on being neutral in this big war between Athens and Do anything to you, deserve it. And the Athenians say, it doesn't matter what you deserve or not, only equals in power talk about who deserves what. Otherwise, the strong do what they want and the weak accept what they have to. Seems like a classic example of a similar dynamic. Yes, one would argue that uh, at least since the 40s, that's a situation, but the Palestinians had an enormous asset, and that's the fact that Israel is physically sitting in an Arab world. So in the small Israeli-Palestinian arena, there is no doubt Israel is far stronger now, but the Palestinians had this shadow power of all the region around us. And I think one of the, perhaps the most interesting aspect of what we discussed is this shadow shadow power that they have is less committed to them, even less committed uh, to them uh, than we thought. So, you know, it depends how wide you open the angle of your perspective to look at power. I mean, no matter how we turn it, Israel is a small country in a large uh, uh, Arab sea. Yeah. Udi, maybe to conclude, let me ask you uh, uh, this. In important ways, both Trump and Netanyahu, two of the three uh, uh, players, uh, are uh, deeply unpopular, uh, viewed as a, a real threat to sort of traditional institutions uh, in their country, and uh, might be uh, 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 soon removed from power. Um, if that's the case, um, where do you see these uh, uh, dynamics with the Gulf states uh, and the Palestinians going? So uh, I know that we don't like to uh, uh, make prophecies and predictions, but nevertheless, I'll ask you to make a prophecy and a prediction. Yeah. So you're right to point to these are dynamics of two separate actors. So on the American side, um, if we have a President Biden that goes to a more traditional uh, approach, foreign policy approach, um, the conflicting tensions. Uh, he does come from a traditional establishment that was engaged with the world, but also reflects 
But this in, uh, establishment and, and Biden himself realized that the main challenge is uh, in Asia and maybe the U.S. should be pulling out from the Middle East. In any event, the real breakthroughs like between Israel and the PLO uh, 